Over the last few weeks, uh, in the messages, I've been showing from Scripture how the gospel compels us. How it compels us to share our lives with one another. How it compels us on this journey inward where we cultivate a relationship with God that is um, genuinely transformative. How it compels us to engage in joyful congregational worship. I've been talking about how the gospel compels us to seek the good of our city through our prayers and our jobs, our vocations and our service. Now, I get the privilege of knowing many of you well. And I know that there are many people in our church who have a real desire and a driving hope To see the joy and the peace and the flourishing of God's kingdom to come to our city and to our valley. I know that there are many people in our church who see the struggles and the pain in our city. Who see the poverty and the injustice and the brokenness in our community. And that there are many of us who really genuinely long for the renewing presence of Christ. To heal and bring wholeness to this community. So our church exists for the glory of God and for the good of our city. Which means that we pray for God's kingdom to come here in Harrisonburg. It means that we pray that his will is done here in Harrisonburg. And our prayer is that Harrisonburg would reflect. The reign of King Jesus. And that our city will go to new heights of flourishing and wholeness. Now this desire, this driving hope is not something that we've worked up. This is the work of God among us. It's right there in the passage that I read to you from Matthew 28. If you have a Bible, I I hope that you do or that you'll acquire one. Um, Matthew chapter 28. Look at. This passage, Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. It tells us this incredible account of one of the last things that Jesus said to his followers. He gives this command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. That last part, I am with you. It is God with us that is growing within us this hope and this desire to see our community filled with the renewing, life-giving goodness of God's kingdom. But notice in this passage that the presence of God also gives us a command. It's not enough to long for it and to pray for it. In this passage, God tells us we have to put feet to our prayers. Right? We can't just exist in a prayer closet praying for this. We also have to do something. God intends for us. Now, this is one of the greatest mysteries I know of. That God intends for us to be his partners. Not because he's weak. Not because for, but that's the way he set the universe up. 
He intends for us to partner with him in this renewing work. And the way that we are to partner with God in this stuff that I've been teaching over the last few weeks, it's through our worship. It's through the journey inward where God makes us into the type of people who who our character matches our message. But there's something else. There's something in this passage that, to be honest, by people in our particular ghetto of the Christian world, there is something that we tend to overlook. And it's a critical aspect of what God is commanding his people to do. Notice in the passage, there's only one imperative, make disciples. That's the only imperative. This was originally written in Greek. That's the only command in the whole passage. The other verbs are all participles. They serve the main verb. When do we make disciples? As we are going. How do we make disciples? By baptizing and teaching. Now this is critical. Matthew, who recorded Jesus' command here. And the people Matthew was writing to, they understood baptizing and teaching as things the church did. Now, you might not in your guts have thought that when you read it, but they did. And Matthew did. These were churchly actions. Now, we know this is true for a whole host of reasons. One very good reason we know this is true is that when you turn to the book of Acts, which is the historical record of the hearers of this actually living this out, we see how they interpreted it. We see how they applied it. We know how those who actually heard this command or who heard from the people who heard the command, we know how they went about observing the command. And you know what it was? They went from city to city, planting churches. Planting churches that planted churches. That's how they interpreted Jesus' command to make disciples by baptizing and by teaching as they went. Christians would find their way to the largest city in a region and plant churches there. And then move on to the next city. Now, this is the model throughout the New Testament. Now, what I'm saying and what I'm going to spend the rest of this message unpacking is that we, the church of the incarnation, we need to plant other churches. And we need to do this for three primary reasons. The first reason is what I've just gone over from the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. We need to plant other churches because we love God and we want to obey him. We want to obey his command to make disciples in the way that he told us to make disciples. Now, this is a shift for many people who interpret Jesus' great commission in terms of personally sharing the gospel, which is very important. It's just not what the great commission is talking about. That comes up in other parts of scripture, but it is not what Jesus is talking about here, and it is not how the early church interpreted this. Now, you might think, Aubrey, there's a problem. 
The main problem with Christianity today is the church. The whole idea of church today is either irrelevant or negative to most people who don't go to church. Now that's true. We should know that most people who are not a part of a church either find the church irrelevant or profoundly negative. So now we've got a problem. If the whole idea of church is either irrelevant or negative, if it carries overtones of kind of ghettoism or pompous, arrogant hypocrisy, then God has a problem that he connected the spread of Christianity to this thing that has become so tarnished. A bunch of bureaucratic institutions filled with bigots who don't like poor people or gay people or anybody who thinks differently than them. Surely it's not very clever to tie the spread of Christianity so closely to a bunch of clubs that just guard the status quo. Not to mention Churches have an incredible track record of being profoundly inefficient, wasting money, wasting people's time, wasting all manner of resources. So since it's possible to become a Christian without a church, that's where we should focus, helping other people become Christians despite the church. Now, I think that is a serious issue that we must deal with. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It's a few pages to the right. If you need to use a table of contents, that's perfectly fine. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the image of the church is that the church is a mother. A mother, a mother who nurtures. And teaches and loves and protects. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse 8. When he, talking about Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now jump down to verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. These are the gifts that God gave. And what are these gifts for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, in this passage and countless other passages like it, we see that committed participation in the local congregation is essential to maturing as Christians. In fact, in these passages, we find the kind of stuff that propelled the earliest church to understand God is our heavenly father 
and the church as our earthly mother. Just one example. In the third century AD, there was a bishop in North Africa. His name was Cyprian. And he wrote about this other bishop named Novation who had left the church. So two bishops duking it out. Cyprian in the church, Novation had left the church. And Cyprian said, even though Novation is saying the right things about God, even though he is not teaching anything that is bad or wrong, it does not matter. He is not a Christian who is not in Christ's church. He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. Now that's strong medicine. It's it's the kind of medicine that non-Catholic American Christians have no truck for. And I know that this view of the church has definitely been abused. By the Middle Ages, it had hardened into this dogma that was used to stifle dissent and maintain a monopoly on power. You know, a priest or a bishop threatening to kick someone out of the church if they disagreed or they rocked the boat somehow. And if that happened, they said you were damned to hell because there is no salvation outside the doors of the church. That is not at all what Cyprian is talking about. That is not appropriate. He is saying something that we desperately need to hear. We must be honest. You cannot find a single place in all of the Bible where church is just a plural of Christians. The Bible simply does not support the idea that hanging out at some coffee house talking about Jesus is church. When you have two people at Starbucks who are talking about Jesus, that's nice. And they may be a group of Christians, but they are not the church. Not in the sense we're talking about this morning. Now, God has the creativity and the power to have set things up very differently if he wanted to. But he simply did not. He designed things. In the, it is in the grain of the universe so that we cannot grow into maturity as God's children apart from the local church. I'm not at all trying to paint a picture of the church as a perfect place. To be honest, if you commit to yourself to the church, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer probably more from the church than you do for the church in our culture. The church is going to fail you and frustrate you. Because it is still a human institution. It's broken. But the church will also bless you. A living, breathing congregation is the only place to live in a healthy relationship to your creator. Because it is the only place on earth where Jesus chose to dwell. How can you enjoy the benefits of Christ if you detach yourself from the living Christ? The second reason we are committed to church planning is because we love the church. And we understand that she is the mother for those who love God. Scripture and history show us that strong gospel centered local churches are the womb in which new Christians are conceived and birthed and nourished and cared for and brought to maturity. There are exceptions But you're not one of them. No 
Don't let this notion of American exceptionalism seep its way into the way you relate to God. Now, there's a third reason we need to plant other churches. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to notice in this passage of Scripture, Jesus has wedded together the way and the truth. When he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. In the words of one of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, the Jesus way is wedded to the Jesus truth. And this alone brings the Jesus life. We cannot proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it in any old way we like. You cannot follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. I've just tried my hardest to insult both the fundamentalists and the liberals. Now, to be honest, in the little corner of the Christian landscape that our types of Christians tend to inhabit, Jesus is the truth gets far more attention than Jesus is the way. But this passage of scripture here, we see that the way comes first. We cannot skip the way of Jesus. In our hurry to argue about the truth of Jesus. Or to stand for the truth of Jesus. Now what does this have to do with our church's need to plant our ch- other churches? Well I'm so glad you asked. Here's the answer. Here's the relationship between John 14.6 and way and truth being related. Here's the relationship between that and our church planting churches. A Christian congregation. The church in your neighborhood. A local church, the church in your neighborhood has always been the primary way, the primary location for getting the way of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and the life of Jesus believed and lived out. It's always been the case. Now, I know that there is more to church than a local congregation. There is a sense in which all Christians in all times and all places Living and dead are the church. I'm not talking about the church in that way. Our language of church is far more robust than that. It actually encompasses this other sense of church that is distinct and we need to deal with. It is the local church. The local congregation is the place where we get all the ideas of Christianity and all the virtues and all of the prayers and sufferings and good works. The local church is the place where all the stuff of Christianity gets local and personal. Now, I am not saying that all of your Christian life is lived through the local church. That's not the case at all. I did a whole series on the relationship of your work to the kingdom of God this this fall. I, I deeply believe in the role of parachurch and so many other things. That's not what I'm saying. And it's our confusion over those things that has resulted in the state of things in America today. 
The local church is the place. It's the community where we listen to God's commands and obey God's commands. The local church is the place. It's the community where we invite people to consider and to respond to Jesus's Invitation. The local church is a place in the community for worshiping God. It is a place in the community where we are baptized into the Trinitarian identity and then go on to maturity. It is the place where we can be taught the scriptures and learn to discern the way of Jesus. Now. One of my favorite philosophers is a dead dude by the name of Ludwig Wittgenstein. So maybe some other nerds in the room have heard of him. And um, his, he has his book, Philosophical Investigations. And he's got this, he's, it's filled with all these incredible insights. But here's one of the most powerful that has shaped my view of the church and of life. Wittgenstein says, we have got onto slippery ice. Where there is no friction and so in in a certain sense the conditions are ideal. But also just because of that we are unable to walk. We want to walk so we need friction. Back to the rough ground. Now what he's doing is he's talking about. Philosophers who love to live at the space of generalized principles. And he was calling philosophy back to the rough ground Of particular local situations. What he's saying is. That the concrete reality of your life. Your family life. Your life at work. Of Harrisonburg. Of your neighborhood. He's saying that the concrete reality of life. Is where we have to live. Instead of the shiny surface. Of idealized generalized principles. Now let me say what that means. It means that the primary place for dealing with the particulars of the people that that we encounter is the local church. This is the Jesus way. Look, there are popular ways of doing church in America that are not friendly to what I'm talking about. The American way has this penchant for catchy slogans and stirring visions That denigrate the local. That really sound pretty. But have nothing to do. With the lived reality you're going through. The American way of doing churches. With it's programmatic attempts. At dealing with people. Can get lots of success. And if the pastor's tall enough. And smiles well enough. He can be the face of that. And you can. Get great success, but I'm arguing that it's slippery ice. That there's no friction, that you're not really walking down the Jesus way. The overly programmed approach to church replaces intimacy with functions. And your idols like it and my idols like it. And so we flock to it and we get as big as we need to be. We cannot suppress the Jesus way in order to sell the Jesus truth. We're not hucksters. The Jesus way and the Jesus truth must match. Only in America would you think you can divorce the the way you do stuff from the thing itself. We cannot do this only when the Jesus way is organically joined with the Jesus truth. Can we ever get the Jesus life? 
You see, our cities need far more churches than you think. Many more churches than you think. Each part of our community is different. Have you noticed the difference between Parkview and Barrington? Have you noticed the difference between downtown and Elkton? Think about the difference. Think about how each of the places in our community has its own flaws and its own fears and its own hopes and its own strengths. It is the job of a neighborhood church to discern the glory and the idols of its neighborhood. And then to apply the gospel and to communicate the gospel in a a way that works for that neighborhood. Look, there are ways of communicating the gospel along the Port Republic Road corridor that would tick off people in Parkview. Because there are deeply embedded value systems that totally interpret whatever you say in these places. A neighborhood church in Parkview that takes it seriously will love its virtues and fight its vices. A church in Elkton will take Elkton serious, will love its strengths and will Embrace its idiosyncrasies and will expose its idols. For our church to take our neighborhood seriously, we need to learn to love and serve the homeless who sleep behind our building and who sleep under that overpass right there. And we have to learn how to embrace the loneliness of Line Weaver. This is a very different set of issues than if a church is located along the Port Republic Road corridor. Because the idols of Highland Park and Lakewood are different. And the brokenness is different. For us to overlook the homeless would be like a church along the Port Republic Road corridor overlooking 10,000 college students living in acres of apartments with no bright Christian light. And a church that's in that area that doesn't take Thursday and Friday and Saturday night among the college student population. And seriously, a church to live there that doesn't turn its face to that is like you and I stepping over the homeless on our way into this church and thinking we can sing to the glory of God. A church in Bridgewater can get off the ice and back into the rough ground of real everyday life in Bridgewater. So the third reason we need to plant churches in and around Harrisonburg is because we love our neighbors. And Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, teaches us that we actually love our neighbors only when we actually touch them and meet their need With our time and our resources at great loss to our own agendas and comfort. Until then, love is an abstract theory. But not a lived reality. Parish churches are best situated to apply the gospel. The kingdom of God is preeminently local. And if it's not the idols in your heart will deceive you into believing 
that you're living out the gospel. Paris churches are, are the best way to apply the gospel to the flaws and the fears and the hopes of real people. To embrace and nurture and protect the strengths of a neighborhood and to challenge and expose the weaknesses. We will love our neighbors only when we spend time with them. And when we embrace the fact that the church in your neighborhood has always been the primary location for getting the way and the truth and the life of Jesus believed and embodied in a neighborhood. So Church of the Incarnation. It would be a tragedy for us to think we've arrived. Now that we moved out of this tight, cramped place into this beautiful building. We must plant churches. Because we love God and we want to obey him. Because we love the church and we understand her role in the lives of people. Because we love our neighbors and will endure whatever price is demanded of us to offer them the mercy of Christ. For these reasons, our church must plant churches. Church planting must be woven into the warp and woof of our life as a congregation. It it, it should be as much an ongoing natural part of our church as worship and evangelism and fellowship and education and service. The kingdom of God is primarily local because life is local, because you're not a disembodied spirit, because you can't be in lots of places at once. You can only be in one place at once and everything about that place impacts you. And the kingdom of God is it takes up this this fact of creation. And it lives into it. Think about this. Jesus could have come at a time when there were satellites. Did he diminish his message by coming at a time when you could not be in more than one place at once? Or was he teaching us sophisticated moderns with all of our technological abilities to zip through places and to be in multiple places as we multitask? Was his incarnation in such a backwards part of time perhaps a great clue to reality? That the kingdom of God, Jesus, God himself restricted his enfleshment To only the people he could interact with. And that is the clue to healthy church life. That is why we're called the church of the incarnation. So that if my ugly mug ever ends up on a screen in another building. We have to change our name. The Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. He described our world as charged with the grandeur of God. And in another poem he described Christ. I love this. Jesus Christ is the one who plays in 10,000 places. What a beautiful image. Jesus playing in a place. In a particular place. Playing in downtown. Playing in Parkview. Playing in Dayton. Playing in the Port Republic Road Corridor. In Bridgewater. In Broadway. In East Rockingham. We get to find and join Christ at play in our place. That's what it means to be the church. Let's pray.